Welcome to another episode of Cha Chat. Uh, today is very exciting because we're going to gossip about tea and empire. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce uh, who we're talking with today. We have Dr. Erica Rappaport, who's a professor uh, in history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We also have Bethany Qualls, who is a PhD candidate here at UC Davis in English literature. Now, to get started, I always like to ask everyone, what is your personal relationship with tea and what is your professional relationship with tea? Um, so I'm going to start with you, Erica, if that's all right, and then we'll ask you, Bethany. Sure. Um, I was just thinking about my personal relationship to tea actually developed as I was writing my book and after because I did not come to the book as a tea lover or teapot collector, or, you know, but actually, you know, as a historian, which I'll talk about in a few minutes as I came to the intellectual questions, but started as I started writing, you know, you become obsessed and you want to eat or drink the commodity that you're <laughs> writing about. And there's so many advertisers saying how wonderful it was. I really developed my taste for tea. And then also, um, you know, developed more of a palate as I got to know the kind of historical knowledge and tea, where tea comes from, et cetera. But the beautiful thing about publishing a book on tea is um, tea exporters and retailers perpetually send me delicious tea and so and give you gifts of tea so since the books come out I've gotten first flushed Darjeeling and rare teas from China and you know it's so that's been really wonderful it's like a ready-made gift so I have to say my palate's improved quite a bit and then I, I'm very thankful that I didn't write about chocolate because <laughs> especially during the pandemic maybe it wouldn't be so good for me it's much better for me to have this passion you know for drinking a healthy commodity. Um, I don't know, Bethany, if you want to talk about your personal relationship, and then we could go to professional maybe after that. Yeah, yeah, it sounds great. Um, I have always been a, a tea drinker. I've always liked tea more than coffee. Um, and I also was thinking about this and doing a lot of like, I remember going to Mariage Frere in Paris <laughs> and like drinking Tate and Noel and being like, this stuff is amazing. Um, and when I, I moved to San Francisco in the fall of 2008, and one of my roommates is an old dear friend who was a professional chef and a giant tea drinker. And so we had this huge teapot that we would always like have on the go, especially when we both had days off. Um, and she was the one who tuned me into like Ahmed tea because it rebrews quite nicely. And when you're working for Pete's um, because it's a recession, uh, rebrewing sometimes is the thing you need to do. So uh, yeah, so I still every morning I brew my pot, it's a smaller pot now because it's just me. Um, and I drink it with cream and honey. Um, and I am really, I think the hardest thing I have found, I really like to travel, but there's not a good travel teapot. Um, and like, I'd love for someone to make that. So I'm gonna put that out now to the universe, um, like a collapsible silicon teapot or something because loose leaf tea is so much better than tea bags, uh, which again, is a, obvious thing to say but yeah i really i really like tea a lot i drink my it. travel set just broke i had a ceramic oh. travel set and it broke in transit so i, I hear you <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thinking, i remember seeing the victorians used to have various kinds of travel sets they'd bring to you know on uh 
for a military campaign or expedition or something like that. <laughs> I'll look in my old catalogs for you. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, it was funny, like when I was, um, we'll talk about this more, but I, I did a, a one month fellowship at the Lewis Walpole Library at Yale. Uh, and it's a residential thing and it's very cool. And I was like, okay, like, I hope they have a tea, they must have a teapot at the house that we think they have to. And they pulled one out and it was beautiful and wonderful, but I was like very worried. It's like one of the big things, like, is there going to be a teapot? I will buy one. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah but what about your scholarship? Oh, writer of books of tea. <laughs> well, I came to this, uh, the project on tea, not, as I said, not as a lover of tea, but as a scholar of consumer culture and particularly of gender. In my first book, I looked at the history of shopping and the creation of London's West End as a site of pleasure marketed to women. And I looked a little bit at tea shops in that because tea shops were really marketed particularly to women. And they you know, start in the late 19th century and become you know, major mass market institutions, but there weren't any really good archives. So I didn't write too much about it. Uh, and then I thought I wanted to get away from, I don't know why I thought this because I love London, but that I wanted to get away from London and do a more global project and think more about um, how the British incorporated different commodities from different parts of the empire into their daily habits and diet. And this was before people were really doing this. I guess there were probably a lot of people were thinking about this at the same time. And I thought I would do a chapter on tea. You know, it was sort of like seemed obvious. And then I was in the British Library and I found this amazing archive of international tea producers, really a kind of trade organization of largely Indian, well, British, I should say, British um, planters that owned Indian plantations and plantations in Ceylon, and then later also in Africa. <clears throat> that was 4,000 items. <laughs> And as an historian, you're just, I was like, yes, this is it. You know, forget those other chapters. This is amazing. And I remember very early on reading something in the 1870s. It was like the kind of a narrative of the salesperson who had been a planter traveling all over the United States in 1879, something like that trying to push tea, you know, get Americans to drink tea. And I was just amazed, first of all, how many places that he went, but also that this is obvious. I was interested in globalization and how um, tastes are formed. And he kept writing about how Americans um, didn't have good tea culture, <laughs> didn't know how to make tea. And, um, but the only problem was that they were British and they had to be brought back to their British taste. So I thought, this is a pr great project to look at Britishness, but in a global setting and gender, because it's so gendered as female. Um, and that was really, and it was amazing that that archive hadn't really, a few people had dabbled, you know, dipped into it, but hadn't really looked at it. So it was one of those, I literally felt like the light bulb went off, you know, <laughs> I was like, this is the project for me. So it was definitely, I always come to things through my archives, I think is really the way and what looks like an interesting story as well. And then wanna, 15 years later. <laughs> and I want to put a link to this, but uh, Erica does have a book that just came out, A Thirst for Empire, How, to sh How Tea Shaped the Modern World. So we will definitely have a link to that and others uh, on our podcast site. Er Erica, when you talk about uh, someone in the 1870s saying that Americans can't drink tea, it makes me think of the scene in the second best exotic Marigold Hotel where Maggie <laughs> Smith is like, what is this tea? You Americans can't do any dunk, dunk, dunk. It is amazing. Uh, so that 
yeah, just going yeah. to it. It is interesting, though, because Americans did, before the American Revolution, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that American colonists drank more tea than in Britain for a variety of reasons, but um, it's not just the empire. You know, the um, revolution that caused this rejection, it's a much slower, longer process, but it is true that we have some pretty old stale tea in this country. <laughs> Man, yeah, that's so true. Bethany, what about uh, your research? Yeah, um, so uh, what about my research? Um, so my dissertation project um, is thinking about gossip in the 18th century. Um, and so I am looking at basically how gossip functions in the 18th century England. And originally, um, the project had been organized by like what I was thinking about like gossip figures, um, like the capitalist gossip and the virtuous gossip and things. And then my committee in their infinite wisdom uh, read my first chapter and was like, this is two chapters. And so I had to like think about how I was gonna restructure it. So I was doing this research at the Lewis Walpole Library um, and looking at basically anything that they had. They have a, a giant collection of uh, particularly engravings from the 18th century. They have the biggest collection outside of England. And I looked at anything that was flagged gossip. And then I looked at anything that was flagged tea table um, because those two things go together a lot. Um, and I actually ended up after that summer reorganizing the project. So now um, each chapter looks at a physical space in London. And I use that as sort of a, a case study of the different print things. So I'm thinking about print culture as not just words, but also anything that is mechanically replicated onto a page. Um, so engravings, um, these weird generic things that you're like, I don't know what this is. Um, so yeah, so I have um, a chapter on the coffee house, a chapter on the tea table, a chapter on the brothel, and then a chapter on Pall Mall, uh, which is a shopping district in London. Um, and yeah, the more I got into tea tables, the more tea tables there were. Uh, and <laughs> as Erica was saying, like, there's so much written about tea in the like late 1600s through the 1700s. It's incredible. Uh, it's really, really stunning. Like there are volumes of, of things that are just collections of the various treatises and opinion pieces and tracks and whatever. Um, and so I really uh, got into thinking about what the tea table does and how it functions um, sort of as a cultural signifier, uh, which we can talk about more, but it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty rad. I ended up looking at a lot of engravings because there was so much literature or, or words on a page that I was like, there's no way I can synthesize these hundreds of things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look at a pictures and talk about uh, iconography and use that as a way in so so yeah. Bethany is the tea table um <clears throat> do you look at actually um the furniture itself and when the tea table really starts to become you know can you kind of uh find when it's first really introduced into homes or I know that's not really your area but it's fascinating to think about tea yeah I'd love to know the answer to that question um I so I've been sort of thinking about it uh, basically, I got into this looking at a bunch of engravings, mostly satirical, but not all of them, um, and trying to parse out what the tea table does. And then also it gets linked. So basically the tea table, sort of my basic argument is the tea table acts as a metonym for gossip. So it's a thing connected to gossip that represents gossip. Um, but just like gossip, the tea table is more than we might think, right? So the story that gets told is the tea table is full of gossiping women um, who just you know, chat and are frivolous and like petty 
um, and really concerned with consumerism. But usually, actually, the tea table is heterogeneous, so it has both men and women at it. Um, a woman usually is pouring the tea, like she's in charge of the tea table. Um, it's a femo, it's a femocentric space, and that women are directing it. But it's not often, it's not always just women. Frequently, it's not actually. Um, and you know, gossip is a thing that everyone does too, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the big things that I've been still trying to parse out um, is, you know. Gossip and news are basically the same thing. It just depends on who's talking um, and who, you know, who has the power there. And so, um, yeah, so I, I did, I have done a little bit into like how the tea tables that were getting imported from Asia um, were then being like modified with stands and stuff so that the <laughs> British could use them as like chair height things as opposed to floor, um, mm. like floor height things. Uh, and was looking at some uh, furniture listings and then was like, no, not furniture, prints, pictures, representations of, uh, <laughs> of the table. So, of the table, yeah. yeah. But it's it's so cool because, um, and I'd love to hear you talk more about this, Erica, like the tea table, if you think about the tea table, you know, it's a table uh, and then there's china, um, porcelain, right? And there's the tea and there's the tea box and then there's the other serving ware and how, everything that's on that table basically usually comes from somewhere else but mm -hmm. it becomes this signifier of like british civilization mm -hmm. especially when we get to the 19th century um and it's i mean again that's kind of what your book's all about so i guess <laughs> go, go read her book it's great um it is it's a great read but like there's a really interesting tension there i think yes. the tea table has a lot of curious cultural tension mm -hmm. i guess connected to it yeah, and when you were talking, it made me think of when you were saying about what's the difference between gossip and news, I, it made me just spark that in many um, newspapers and periodicals that are read around the world, you'll see columns that will say over the tea tables and be gossip about um, often like women's pages or, um, yeah, like the... The author will assign themselves like a gossip or and it but it's in it's so that mixture and I was thinking there was a really fascinating article I mean column in one of the first uh, South African newspapers in the 1930s it was really a mass newspaper that was for particularly for black readers and they had every week a column on it was something called like over the tea tables and two women, Annabelle and Isabel or something, talked every um, week about different commodities. And they were all Western commodities. And so they were all, I really argue that this was like, on the one hand, it's taking that British culture that you're talking about as monetized, you know, and turned into a way to introduce um, Western taste. And they would talk a lot about like uh, sugar in particular, of course, with the tea, but, you know, kind of high carbohydrate, high sugar diet caffeinated diet that was not at all typical of, you know, of course, this was in South Africa. Um, and of course, the women were wearing Western style clothing and the whole style and the tea table was very much obviously identified um, with Western culture. But the um, interesting thing is the whole entire newspaper, when I did more research, turned out to be funded by the tea planters that I studied, the same international organization. And I thought, isn't that interesting how they're trying to replicate gossip and what seemed to be the home and non non-commercial culture as it's seen in the you know 1930s and then they use that to spread taste 
you know, and there were more ads in that newspaper than for tea, as you can imagine, than in any other. It died out though later, like other, you know, other commodities and actually Coca-Cola starts to advertise and you start, that culture kind of disappeared. But that was the most striking example. It was like, they're showing people how to gossip about goods to sell goods. And um, that's so, and it's so funny because like, so one of the pieces I've worked on um, is this really strange two-piece work called The Tea Table. Um, at one point, uh, this chapter had three different things also called The Tea Table. Uh, they were all published in the 1720s. So I've been having a lot of fun being like, this tea table versus this tea, okay. Um, but this this weird, she writes this two-part thing. Um, she's a really popular writer. And it's the conceit is that a bunch of people go to this woman's house and she has her tea table and then like the visitors are there and then the hoi polloi leave and the you know intellectual smart cool people that she likes hang out and they like have a chat and they talk about literature and like read the manuscript poem they just happen to have in their pocket and like <laughs> debate ideas about love and um and so there's the first part and then the next year's a second part and so again it's this like commoditizing a place of commodities as a mm -hmm. way to sell print is like, oh, look, here we are. And, you know, there's been really interesting work done on um, the Spectator and the Tatler, mm -hmm. um, which are like some of the earliest, you know, periodicals in England. Um, one of their projects is to like give tea tables something to talk about, um, <laughs> which is like very interesting because the Tatler sort of trying to reclaim, but also not reclaim this idea of tattle, which is another synonym for gossip, right? So, um, you know, we've, I, I've done uh, research in 19th century magazines. Also, there are these sections that are like a gossip on science. Mm -hmm. um, and Robert Louis Stevenson has a work that's called like a gossip on something. I can't remember. A gossip on romance, I think is what it is. And it's like this collection of essays. Uh, it's just, it's very strange. But yeah, it is, it is a cool thing how that it, it always seems to be self-referential in a weird mm -hmm. way like the tea table um as a as a cultural figure i think that's i don't know like you've talked a lot about public culture mm -hmm. uh, and i think that that's sort of a, a framework that we share in terms of approaching this like it's not about like a pot i think one of the other sort of myths is this idea of like there's public culture and private culture mm -hmm. there's the outside <laughs> the home and the inside the home and like Habermas yeah, existed but <laughs> It's very important. I think it's still very much a myth in terms of our knowledge about tea that was primarily a domestic drink, not associated with public culture. And the coffee house and coffee is seen as the public drink. And so I think more and more that was so much, I think a, a legacy of just seeing images like the print culture that you see it with no analysis. So the tea is in the home, but it does, it's totally connected with this, as you say, with news, with global um, commodities, yeah. et cetera. And in fact, tea is drank, drunk outside of the home. It was drunk by men. Um, that sort of feminized image is not a reflection of the actual market for tea, um, but a, in some ways an advertising strategy. Um, but I do think actually that image can and does really hurt tea's reputation in certain places where it's not drunk or there's, because in the United States, there's a lot of anti, in the late 19th century, especially, and early 20th, um, anti-British culture in general, you know, and 
the tea table gets dismissed and tea in general as an upper class, anglophile, overly feminized, overly refined, um, snobby culture. And the tea marketers are really, they analyze and they start doing market research really early and, and consumers will say, you know, tea is for old ladies, tea is British. And then they'll say in the next literally sentence, They'll use a contemporary term for um, queer, you know, and they mean it literally like gay men are drinking tea. Um, but it's a critique of Britain in part two. <laughs> it's like it's the, you know, not masculine. It's not a masculine drink. And the marketers could never overcome that reputation for hot tea, you know, and they tried, they'd say tea is for he-men and, and athletes and lumberjacks and um, frontiersmen and, you know, what have you. Try to discount that reputation, but it was so strong and it really was the tea culture in, especially New England. Um, so ultimately, I kind of argue they did hit on a strategy, which was to invent iced tea, take it out of the teapot, away from the tea table, <laughs> you know, and introduce it and have ice and in a clear glass and kind of remove the material culture that represented Britain. And that similar thing happens in um, a couple of other times, like there's moments in Australia, it might be settler colonial culture, so I'm not entirely sure, but there's in, the, especially the early 20th century, efforts to masculinize tea. But, you know, rather than go for the image and just keep going for the women, you know, <laughs> So those long, the legacies and the images last so long from, you know, 1720s, as you say, like, even yeah. till today, I've seen marketing that tries to, there was a corporation that tried to introduce um, a tea for men, just particularly for the male body. And wow. I thought, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know? Well, and it, it is funny how, um, like what you were saying, like the coffee house sold tea and chocolate. Um, a lot of them did like and there was a whole different taxation on beverages um, when you serve them brewed versus not, right? There was, and that's that's a lot of historical detail that maybe we won't dive into the details of right now. But like what you're saying, um, there's a great series of caricatures by this guy named Tag of dandies. And it's like dandies doing different things. And one of them are dandies having tea. Um, and they're in this like garret space. Um, everything is like, they're like eating toast off the tablecloth that's ripped. There's like one spoon for the two of them, but they're dressed super well. Um, and so there's this, again, this like association with effeminacy mm -hmm. and, you know, foppishness. Um, but what year was that? Was it? Um, I knew you were going to ask me that question. Really easy. Sorry, I'm a historian. <laughs> I know, I know. And I, and I have a whole list of, uh, things it is tag is 18 early 1800s oh, so it's the early yeah the real yeah. dandy romantic yeah, yeah. it's uh 1818 i have oh, my perfect. my list yeah. of images up i said <laughs> uh pull dates because they're not my favorite thing but yeah so yeah william tag uh has this 18 this whole a whole series of great uh that's interesting because there's really i think that's when the um well, of course, new ideas of gender are coming in in that period, and I think yeah. masculinity is really changing, too, and there's an, a, a kind of attempt to eschew any kind of form of consumption that looks feminine, whether it's oh. the color of your clothing, you know, and so, and it's seen as elite and, in a, and feminine. No, um, this, is, this is such an interesting flip. Um, from our second podcast, we talked about Japanese tea culture, and Rebecca Corbett uh, was doing research on the role of women in Japanese tea ceremony, mm -hmm. where it was traditionally considered a very masculine mm -hmm. uh, 
thing, which obviously has changed with time um, yeah. now, but wow, that's really interesting. I, I had another question um, about the tea table. Uh, and this is just personal curiosity. Is there something that defines the tea table, like the shape, the size, the height? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? That's a, that's a great question, Eric. Uh, what I have seen is that, that no, uh, basically, it is a thing you serve tea on. Sometimes a tea table is a tray that c- comes in and is put on top of another table. And sometimes mm-hmm. the tea table is just a table itself. And like I said before, um, the importing of wares from China and Japan, um, that normally the tables would be built to, so mm-hmm. that you were kneeling right on the ground. And so then furniture makers in England would add like longer legs to them. Um, and so you can see these in museum collections. And then domestic production, you know, starts making things that look like they come from, right? It's the same story with ceramics. Um, you know, China comes from China, and then domestic ceramicists are like, hmm, how can we do something like this? Um, which that's a whole other podcast. So small thing, but um, I mean, that's that's my finding. I don't know, Erica, if you found like there doesn't seem to be a defining, like sometimes always, there's angles. The sometimes ones you see in the illustrations are always small, you know, very delicate, you know. And I think I remember you showed me illustrations where often they're getting knocked over, which I know they look spindly, you know. I wonder yeah. if that, I could, I can imagine that's a reality, but also I think you even talk about that a little bit too, like what the upheavals of the home or something, you know. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things, so basically, um, as a way to sort of cover over a hundred years of ideas about tea and tea tables. Uh, I looked at this collection of images that range from 1830s. Um, they start in the 1720s and go to the 1830s. And one of the things I noticed was that people, there are these tea tables that are in motion or flipped over or like, and there seems to be a, a large correlation between uh, satirical prints uh, making fun of marriage or like failed marriages mm-hmm. and like upset tea tables. Um, and so that's like a very interesting, there's a lot of like, there's this running gag of like three weeks after marriage and like they're sitting silently, not looking at each other or like <laughs> having a giant fight or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely a, a link because I think that the tea table comes to re- represent these ideas of civilization and i use that term understanding that's very fraught um that like and like civility and politeness and so it's like well when that gets flipped over then like all hell breaks loose mm-hmm. um there's a great print of uh it is at the blue stockings club um which it's super anti-women um and it's it's the breaking up the blue stockings club and it's just a shit ton of women uh fighting um like like pouring hot water on each other and like <laughs> and there were cats watching them there are lots of weird cats in 18th century prints that look like raccoons um or like skunks mm-hmm. cats or anyway there's like a interesting things uh and i know eric you had said uh i'll like send you some images we can cut this out but uh i can send you some images and we can sort of stick them. yeah no i'll put them on uh yeah you, you know barring copyright of course but yeah you <laughs> yeah, just no, abused me um of the the notion of um uh spilling the tea because i gotta be honest with you when you talked oh. about gossip and tea yeah and you showed me those pictures and they're all yeah. spilling tea they are i'm they like are. that's the source and it's not <laughs> no it's not it is from uh 
gay culture in the night in the 20th century actually that expression mm. um in midnight in the garden of good and evil is like the first recorded use of someone talking about their tea their truth which is um, a person who is trans and then it gets picked up in gay culture and then mm. things like rupaul's drag race happen and it becomes more widespread and so it's this i forget there's a term for it but when you you make up an etymology after the thing exists so people will say, oh, it's because of tea, like, like in all these memes, right, are teacups and iced tea and the Kermit drinking the tea and all that. Um, but it actually comes from tea for truth and transness. And mm -hmm. then it gets turned into this, like, connection with tea, the beverage. Um, and, you know, that's great. Uh, mm -hmm. I did a presentation on that uh, just <laughs> really past spring, in fact. Um, and it was pretty fun. Uh, learned all about weird gossip websites. Uh, it's funny because um, in a lot of the, in the 20th century culture of tea, um, there's a real attempt to try to, it's seen as so fussy by that point, like in the mid 20th century, tea gets really associated with the, in Britain with the old fashioned, you know, um, lack of interest. The tea itself changes and doesn't have the varieties and tastes. It becomes really a mass produced, uninteresting commodity. Um, but in the late 50s and 60s, when the coffee houses really explode again as bohemian sites, like in, in um, Soho and New York, and, you know, there's this uh, kind of recapturing of both, um, well, first of coffee as the cool drink that you drink, not be, because it's not the fussy tea, um, but then the tea culture, you know, tea um, retailers and entrepreneurs and planters say they try to make tea, you know, like queer again in some ways and try to capture that, um, bohemian culture, you know, and create, there was a huge global ad campaign to try to make tea hip. And people had literally t-shirts, you know, that said like drink tea and um, uh, those kind of constructed rock bands that the corporations hire and invent like the monkeys used to be, but you know, there was a tea set and the tea set was the a band that, um, then went all around and performed to try to be cool. But it was actually also the name of, I'm trying to think, I think it was Pink Floyd. That was their first name in 1964. And then they changed it, which I'm glad because I don't think they would have been the same. I have to double check. I'm pretty sure it was Pink Floyd. But it it's interesting that that fussy culture, you know, it kind of comes around at different points, but it's it was hard at that point to re revive the bohemian tea culture of the, you know, your period, Bethany. But some attempts, and they really tried to even create, you know, the kinds of tea shops that looked like ye old 18th century, you know, <laughs> um, some herbal hippie teas and things like that. But it never quite captured that same, um, it just was too fussy, I think, by that, you know, too associated with empire and the Great Depression, too. The cheapest beverage that you could sit and drink and, um, you know, unemployed people, so they drank tea all day long in the Depression. Uh, so it has, you know, it's interesting to trace into the 20th century and then see those changes, even in Britain. And tea consumption's gone down steadily since really about the 1950s, like really significantly. <laughs> uh, in general or, or in the UK? Um, in the UK, and then actually it goes through a certain pattern. It's starting to happen elsewhere in other tea cultures. So in Japan, you know, sodas and these oh. you know, the other tea mm. um, drinks, you know, bubble tea and all that, you know, and a lot of Asian cultures, but also even in India now, young people are losing, it seems that it, it 
declines as a culture becomes more prosperous, more global, more industrial. And there's a generational thing because the young people, at least in the 20th century, want to turn away from the commodities of their parents and grandparents. So it seems that it's it's not parallel in terms of the exact same time, but there's patterns you can see elsewhere. And now in India, they're like, why are young people not drinking tea when they were drinking it? Yeah. Uh, and the matcha industry has been suffering. They're trying to come up with ways to, to you know, kind of keep it alive. But there have been a lot of issues with the matcha because the younger generations haven't picked it up. Wow. Yeah. I got very interested in how markets are created, but then how they are lost, you know, at those key moments. And so it's really interesting to see. Um, and then how marketers try to respond. And they're not usually ever very that successful, it seems. Hmm. They'll go to another place, find a new market, but it's hard when something gets uh, labeled as old fashioned, it's sort of difficult to maintain the same degree of consumption levels. Well, that is extremely interesting. And on that note, <laughs> um, I do have to conclude this podcast, but this has been so cool. And it, wow, just an interesting conversation with both of you. I really appreciate it, Erica, Bethany. Thank you so much for for talking with us on Cha Chat. Um, and well, gosh, I hope we get to talk again on another topic. And let's plan on that. Uh, thank you so much. Together. <laughs> yeah, in person, maybe. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> Thank you.